0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's Halloween Eve, so I've gone back into the vault to bring you some fun interviews to help get you in the mood. Later, I'll recommend Let Me In, that's a great vampire movie that you may not have seen. It's something fun to watch this weekend. We'll also meet the director, Matt Reeves, who will talk about the movie and why we get scared when we go to the movies. Then we'll spend some time with horror maestro Guillermo del Toro, director of movies you love like the Academy Award-winning The Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth, The Devil's Backbone, Pacific Rim, and many, many more. This is a conversation we had nine years ago, and we talk about why he's drawn to the horror genre, why children play such large roles in his films, and much, much more. First though, if you are like me, you grew up going to midnight screenings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, I don't know how many times I've seen the movie, probably way too many times to count. But for the uninitiated, those who didn't go to the midnight screenings and do the time war, here's what the movie is all about. Released in 1975, it's a rock and roll musical about a newly engaged couple whose car breaks down in an isolated area. When they seek shelter at a scary-looking castle, they're brought into the bizarre world of Dr. Frank M. Furter, played by the great Tim Curry. The cast is populated with colorful characters, two of whom join me today. Patricia Quinn and Nell Campbell appeared in both the original stage production and the movie of the Rocky Horror Picture Show as Castle Maid Magenta and the tap-dancing Columbia, respectively. I started the conversation with these two by asking Patricia about her agent, telling her about the contract for the original stage show and the payment of just £18 a week.
1: He said, a Rocky Horror Show, upstairs Royal Court, 18 quid a week, blah, 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 uh, three weeks. And um, I said, what is this show? What's it about? He said, I think it's something about a circus.
2: <laughs> I don't know. We rehearsed for three weeks, didn't we? Yes, so that's a very short time. Isn't it, it is it? a very short time. But and here we the- are. I'm telling all the you. And they
1: are, uh, no, but they asked me to do another two weeks, which was five. And I had a nanny at the time. I handed her my 18 quid. That was her wages. <laughs> I said, I can't afford to do another two weeks at this money. Sorry, mate. And they said, please, Pat, because we're going to move it. This show's going to move.
0: Before it moved, though, it became uh, a giant. Hit. I mean, Mick Jagger was coming, Princess Margaret was coming to the. What was it like backstage knowing that the sort of glitterati of London at the time were coming to see you?
2: It's funny you mentioned the glitterati because some of the people you've mentioned, when Mick Jagger came, we couldn't perform that night because some glitter had got caught in the foreskin of the, one of the actors, the actor that played Rocky. <laughs> no, a doctor was, had to come and check him out and said that the show cannot go on.
3: <laughs>
1: That's right, and Nell kept saying that evening, "I'll play
2: Rocky, I'll play Rocky." <laughs> That's right. This little slip of a girl. Yeah, and the, and we uh, had Jim- Jagger in the audience, and it was the last night at the th- at the Royal Court mm-hmm. upstairs. Yes, and Mick was in. I mean, God, yeah.
0: The- then from there, you move theaters uh, several times, and then the movie happens. And you know the movie has become legendary, but the the shooting of it, I think, from what I've read, is almost as legendary.
1: We did have a sound stage where all the main things, like the time warp and whatever, mm-hmm. were played. Uh, the derelict House... Bray Studios. Yeah. Yes, the old Hammer Horror Studios, and um, we had a sound stage, but. Um, Brian Thompson, the designer, suddenly spotted the house, which had gone into ruin because they'd taken the lead off the roof so it would go into disrepair because they wanted the land. And he said, what's that over there? He said, let's take it. That was That's what made this film, apart from everything else, was that we got the house. So we mm-hmm. had the laboratory on top and the gargoyles and the door and all of that. But inside, the floorboards were falling apart, um, falling apart at the seams. <laughs> and anyway, so, uh, so um, we shot the dinner scene in that house uh, with meatloaf um, because um, we have the doors and we shot... The, the staircase with Dr. Scott going up on the wire with his, um, you yep. know, and our bedroom in the house now, like Yeah, yeah. But lots of it, much, like all the big stuff, laboratory stuff, everything took place on the soundstage. On the soundstage. Yes.
0: What, what do you remember about the, was it, did it feel rushed while you were doing it? But you, you knew everybody because you yes, had been well, working exactly, with them for a long time. Except
1: for
2: Susan and Barry. Right. Who
1: slotted in like a
2: glove. It wonderful. Yeah. I, I I do remember being aware that twentieth um, century fox were breathing down Jim Sharman's neck, the director. Mm-hmm. So there was that. And it was freezing, bloody cold in that place. We <laughs> were so cold. But we were, you know. But we
1: didn't complain, did we, now? We
2: never complained. Only
1: Susan, who kept telling the world that her main thing about Rocky Horror when she's ever asked is that she got pneumonia. And I'm sure there's something more interesting to say than that. (laughs) (laughs) Like
2: who she was sleeping with at the time.
0: Oh! Frank! Is there a story there that we should know?
2: Move on. Next question. Okay, next question. Oh, she's such a gossip.
0: I know. No, I know. a gossip
2: would have told the answer. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry.
0: If I turn the microphones off, will you tell know me the su- answer?
1: She's such a tease.
0: <laughs> so, Patricia, you have probably the most famous lips in cinema history.
1: Isn't it stunning? That's but a the great way of putting it. In is. the world, that's wonderful. Eat your heart out, Mick Jagger. And tell
0: me about shooting the the famous opening of the movie, the uh, science fiction double feature. It's your lips, and it was kind of an uncomfortable shoot, though, from what I understand.
1: The last day, Jim Sharman said to me, Pat. He said, "Well, I have an idea. I think what we'd like to do is use your lips." Um, to um, mime to science fiction, because I knew science fiction from on the stage, also had a pair of lips. (laughs) Anyway, so he he said, "Uh, could you do that? And I said, my lips and his voice? How much? (laughs)
0: That would
1: cost you. Anyway, so he got to the lips... And we went to Elstree Studios and I was now on the West End stage with my name and lights, which Nell lived in a flat across the road and she and I stood there in her flat and took pictures of my (laughs) name and lights. It was wonderful. It's not easy to get your name up there and lights, you know. And uh, then they rang me and said, would you come and do the lips now? I thought, the lips? Oh, yeah. So I went to Elstree for the day and it was so sad because Elstree was completely dark. Nothing was being made, no film, nothing. Mm. It was empty except for me sitting outside on a chair being completely blacked out face and made up a pair of lips.
0: You're listening to my interview with Patricia Quinn and Nell Campbell of the Rocky Horror Picture Show.
1: And then I went into the studio, and they had no special effects, no way to do this. So they were shooting with a camera with a little um, cut-out thing over it and trying to focus. But as I moved my mouth... Um, my, your, your face moves, you know, mm-hmm. head moves. And the, I was going out of frame. The lips were going out of frame all the time. And that's when the guys said, uh, you see that arc lamp? Take it out of that. Take that thing and uh, take the, screw clamp. it out and take the clamps and clamp her in. <laughs> so they did. They screwed my head in. Yeah. You know, uh,
0: <laughs> and how did you react when a studio executive described your lips as lewd and lascivious?
2: Did he? The yes. highest form of flattery. Wow. Sure he was upset, apparently. Who said that?
0: It was a studio executive that I read about. Uh, when he first saw the film, he thought that it was uh, over the top.
2: Oh, really. what a hoot. How divine.
1: <laughs> yeah. That must have been Lewd when Jim Sharman said to me at one point, Jim Sharman, lick your lips. You know, because he's mm-hmm. shouting out directions, as so I was doing it. I thought, like, oh, okay. Nah. You know, and that, that bit's quite good. It's <laughs> great that bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes, you play Columbia in the film. Yes. You have the
0: solo verse in in Time, Time Warp. Uh, how often do people come to you and sing or
2: or uh, you know tell you how much that meant to them? Well, I think it was the tap dance solo yeah. that yeah. makes it more uh, original. <laughs> I, well, they people, many people have told me they took up tap dancing because of that. So that's really? always great. Um, and uh, I, I, what can I say, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Nell Campbell. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Is it true, Patricia, that you once invited Prince Charles to see the show, but suggested that he show up in his underwear?
2: Yes, and
1: that's absolutely true. We came into the Duke of York's theatre for six months. So it was OK. And um, my husband, Sir Robert Stevens, said to the prince, um, you must catch Pat and her show in Sheffield. I believe you're going to be in Sheffield next week. And so I said, "Oh yes, Robert, fine, okay." And anyway, so then Sir said to me a, f- a few months later, he "said Pat, I'm so sorry I missed your show. Uh, I but I could hardly turn up in you know garters and fishnets." <laughs> and I said, "No, but you could have come as Brad the nerd." And he said, "The nerd." And I said, uh, "Yes." And he said, did you ever see the play The Nerd by Ron Atkinson? I said, never. He said, it was marvellous. And I thought, oh, phew. Yeah. <laughs> I would have prince. thought he was often in Garters. <laughs> That's your opinion now.
0: <laughs> what do you think the lasting appeal of Rocky Horror is?
2: Oh, well, I just think, strangely enough, it's hit a nerve with people. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think that the sexuality of it has has made it um, even more special than other films that have cult followings, because it's... First of all, it doesn't take itself seriously, the film, even though it affects people seriously. And because there's just so many, you know, small-town Americans that... Find it very hard being out there if they've got any sort of sexual innuendo or whatever their inclinations are, or just people that feel, you know, not as conventional as the locals. I think it's it's given them, um, it's given them sort of a safety net, or or it's given them a key to yes, I can be like this and and have a great time. And so they they meet at the at the midnight screenings and make it, have a new find a community, and that helps them move from how they're feeling if they're feeling isolated into the big wide world and it's helped so many people in that way but I do think that the fact that it's a perfect little musical and I say little only because it was a when we were performing it it was 90 minutes long and uh so great songs great short book very funny and witty and not a dud song in it. And um, the whole, so the package is just, a, it's a perfect package.
0: I had so much fun talking to those two. That was Patricia Quinn and Mel Campbell of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They played Magenta and Columbia, respectively. Don't go anywhere. We continue to celebrate Halloween Eve. Who better to spend some time with at this time of year than Guillermo del Toro, the Oscar-winning director of The Shape of Water. Now, if you're a horror fan, you know his movies like Kronos, The Devil's Backbone, The Unforgettable Pan's Labyrinth, Mimic, Blade 2*, and there's, there's so many more. This conversation is from the Vault. 9 years ago we sat down to talk horror. I began by asking why children frequently have such large roles in the kinds of stories that he likes to tell on screen. Here's Guillermo del Toro.
4: I have a horrible childhood <laughs> emotionally. Did I, you? I, yeah, I, I didn't I was not a child that got like beaten or locked in a closet, but I I really had a very intense, shall we say, very intense relationship with the uh, the horror of Catholic uh, guilt and right. the Catholic dogma and, uh, you know, all this. My mo- my grandmother was a very, very, it was like Piper Laurie in, in Carrie. You yes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, it was, I, I was like a chubby version of Carrie. <laughs> and, 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 and it was very difficult for me to get over that. And at the same time, I forged an alliance with the monsters when I was a kid. Right. So it's completely autobiographical in that sense. My, my imaginarium sort of gets created in my early, early years. Mm-hmm. I jokingly say that I spent 40 years trying to recuperate from the first eight. <laughs> but to a degree, it's true. I mean, I, I really suffered intensely in the first 10 years of my life. I, I truly would uh, cry uh, at the concept of uh, burning in hell or the concept of purgatory and original sin and all these things that, that and and Mexican Catholicism is very very brutal mm-hmm. and very very gory, so that that also affected me.
0: And your parents were devout?
4: No, my parents no, but my my mother for a while in my in my life she was an absent mother, right. and my father was like me a workaholic. Right. Uh, my my dad all the discipline I have for work I got from my dad. At the same time, I didn't get a lot of my dad, you know. But but so I lived mm, most of my childhood. I spent uh, with my grandmother, right? And and she was, you know, extreme, shall we say?
0: And I've heard uh, a story about you reading Famous Monsters of Film yeah. Land, which was a, a, a magazine that was, I mean, beyond influential for yes. me. We're the same age, so yeah. it was beyond influential for me. And uh, it didn't go over well.
4: No, no. no. I, I mean, I, I learned I learned uh, to speak English by having a dictionary right. and reading Mad Magazine and Famous Monsters, <laughs> and by by reading the subtitles in in Universal Monster movies, mm-hmm. and 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 learning what what they were saying. So I literally was self taught uh, at a very early age because I wanted to know what the the, the pictures. Right. Said in the in the magazine, my 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 grandmother uh, really hated that she was. It was strange because she, on the one hand she bought the magazines for me, she really was a very doting right woman. She was very loving, uh, but uh, but one part of her was really really damaged by religion. She, she there's no other way of saying it, but she was she loved me. And she would buy me my comics and my monster comics. But she had a very hard relationship with that. And she would cry also, like, oh, you know, why do you like these things? And, uh, like, I would do a monster in plasticine or droid, and she would cry because it's not beautiful. But she did love me a lot, and, and I loved her. As, as As suffocating as the influence was in certain ways, I survived my childhood because I had her love. In a way, you know?
0: Well, we talked earlier about your uh, use of children in mm-hmm. movies quite often, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I never feel like I'm being manipulated by the use of children. Sometimes no. when you have kids in movies, mm-hmm. if it's a horror film mm-hmm. or a romantic comedy or whatever genre it is, mm-hmm. the kids are there. Uh, Kind of in the same way that you give the main character a dog because you know if he's got a big golden Labrador <laughs> he's retriever, a good then guy. he's a good guy, you yeah. know? And so the kids are often used that way. I don't feel that way about these movies. No.
4: No, well, because the kids are not devices. They are real characters. Yeah. I mean I think uh, arguably uh, you can you, – you know, all the kids in Devil's Backbone mm-hmm. are real characters. I mean they they are – not only instrumental to the storytelling but they are distinctive characters there's other types of utilization of kids in movies where they become devices yeah. almost you know they become the possessed child or yeah. the you know they they're used almost like uh, trump cards right uh, for the emotions of the audience
0: you're listening to my interview with director Guillermo del Toro i found a great quote from you we we were talking a lot about kids and childhood today so i thought uh, this might be interesting. Uh, you said, as a kid, I dreamed of having a house with secret passages yeah. and a room where it rained twenty four hours a day. The yeah. point of being over forty is to fulfill the desires you've been harboring since you were seven.
4: This is true,
0: and oh, this is Bleak House. Yeah, it's, that you're not, talking it's now about. two houses. Well, uh, l- explain uh, because uh, I've seen the video. Uh, I've yeah. uh, l- explained for people what Bleak House is. What
4: happened is uh, I, uh, seven years ago when I was I was hanging up. Uh, I used to have. About uh, half of my house, the family home, was occupied by my collection of stuff, and it was really, really getting to a hoarding point. You know where I, you need, you were moving between piles of books and stuff like that. So, my I was hanging a picture in the kitchen, and my wife said, "There's no way you're putting that picture near the kitchen where the kids go by every day." And I, I, I had a moment, and I realized, look, I'm four, I'm forty-two or 41, and I spent all my mo- m- my early years with my mother telling me what not to do. And now I'm married and my wife is telling me what not to do. And I said, screw it. I'm buying a house. And I went and bought a house, and uh, for me, uh, away from the family home. And I, I, I said, oh, this is too ambitious. I'm never going to fill it up. And now uh, I bought the house next door and expanded it. And it is a it is a house, uh, I do everything, I decorate it, I, I, I assemble the furniture, I put place the books, I ha- I choose the framing on the pictures, I install the books, I install everything, and, and uh, I don't trust anyone else to do it, first of all. But the house is now a vast collection of thousands and thousands of books, uh, 7,000 movies, thousands of DVDs, thousands of... Uh, collectibles, life-size statuary. Uh, there's a, a bronzes in the garden. Uh, there's a life-size H.P. Lovecraft standing in the library looking at you when you enter. The Almost the entire cast of uh, Todd Browning's The Freaks mm-hmm. is around the house, like, looking at you. Uh, I commi- in,
0: in life-size. Life-size.
4: Yeah. I commissioned them, and, and there's uh, two great artists. Uh, one is called Thomas Kubler, and uh, and he's incredible, and Mike Hill, and they are amazing. You can Google them, mm-hmm. and they do live, live, lifelike uh, silicon and and uh, figures that look like the person. And so the house is populated by uh, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein being made up by Jack Pierce, right. uh, a, a Frankenstein face which you can Google. You can put Mike Hill Frankenstein, and you'll find it. And secret passages. Uh, Secret doors behind paintings, a room where it rains 24 hours a day, and and I am I tell you right now I'm gonna sound like the freak I am. No, there's not a place in the world where I'm happier. Well,
0: it, it it strikes me that it's the place that was your safe place when you were seven. It's the place you imagined.
4: Well, when I was with, when I lived with my my mother and my grandmother, I lived there and. Uh, one of the things we used to do that we, and she was so nice with me. I mean she really was sweet with me. She would uh, she would indulge me in discussing where we should put a secret door right. in the house. And I was a little child. and I would say, if we put a door here and we hide it and you you know, we plaster it and I can put a painting or. So I've been designing secret doors <laughs> all my life and, and now this is the house.
0: A quote from you here is that history is ultimately an inventory of ghosts. And that really seems true in terms of your body of work. And I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's a theme that that goes through. It certainly
4: through. is. It, it, it's part of Hellboy, part of uh, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, part of Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I think that uh, we, we, we have, um, you know, nothing that has happened in the past has not affected our present. I, I believe that. I mean, everything that has happened in the past, everything. Mm-hmm. A guy dying in New Jersey, without anyone knowing, it has affected who we are right now. And I do believe in, in everything being interconnected. And and certainly in the bigger picture of history, that's true. You know, we, we still live uh, under the shadow of the wars that we have waged. Mm-hmm. You know, the... the, the, the a quote-unquote war on terror, uh, the the Vietnam War, the Spanish Civil War. So, not, all these things are still hovering around us, and and whatever injustice, whatever brutal act has been done in the few, in the past, it it weighs on
0: us. In other interviews, you've talked a little bit about. Uh seeing death in a certain way because of your roots, because you're Mexican, and uh, you worked next door to a morgue for a while, so you saw bodies coming and going. You say that you've had a gun held to your head, people burned alive, stabbed, decapitated, all those kind of things, Uh, and you say Mexico is still a very violent place. It is I guess that all figures into the work that you do. I mean, it's all. I'm just trying to, to paint a picture. I guess of of uh, of all yeah. the inspiration I'm swirling I'm around. Not,
4: I'm, I, let me put it this way: I, I I abhor violence, but I think it's part of the human endeavor. You know, where, wherever we are, is part of that. And and I I don't like it. I, I, I can handle it in fiction. I don't I don't understand it very well in in real life. Right.
0: Can you imagine? doing anything else uh, or, or would it be possible for you to do anything else than what you
4: do? No, it's come to the point. It's come to the point now for me that, um, frankly, you know, uh, is I, I'm a lot of people are workaholics, mm-hmm. which means they are basically escaping real life through their work in a dramatic, addictive way. I'm not a I'm not a workaholic. I really live when I'm working. If if you removed the storytelling and the filmmaking from it, I would crumble. Right. It's, it's like today I was discussing Quentin Tarantino, and I was saying the reason why uh, Quentin people people that misread Quentin they think there is a smug uh, postmodern winking at, uh, that is dissecting cinema of the past. No, the guy literally has a promiscuous relationship with cinema. Cinema for him is life. Mm-hmm. Life, I don't know if he's very apt socially or not. I We're, we're friends, but right. I, I, don't, I have no idea. But he definitely has been able to breathe and survive as a person because of movies.
0: Absolutely. And and I've, gotten, I've met him a number of times, and that's exactly the feel that I get from but him. But that's him. It's that's not him. a pose. It's no, it's not a pose. And that's entirely the thing. Him. And I think that—you're right. I think that's what people misunderstand about him. And, yeah. you know, maybe that's why— um you know you and quentin and um, i'm sure that there's a, a few others that i could lump into this group who are people that not only direct but create mm-hmm. the stories that you make you create you know uh and and not all directors do and i think maybe that's that's the thing that sets you guys apart
4: well but the, the also the thing is that i i live the stuff i i and i i'm not uh, like like i'm not sure that who I appeal to, uh, I, I really am not. Uh, but I know I'm ill-fitting in a lot of places. Like, I'm not entirely just uh, this or that or, uh, you know, I, like, I love doing, people tell me, oh, I love your Spanish movies, but I I, I I, see, I'm very glad you do the American ones to finance the, I don't, no, 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 no. You misunderstand. Hellboy, or in this instance, Pacific Rim, is as personal to me. As Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, there is no movie I undertake in a different way.
0: You're listening to my interview with horror director Guillermo del Toro. David Cronenberg turned down, I think it was uh, the second Star Wars movie Mm -hmm. they wanted him to direct. He turned down Flashdance. Now, you know, Star Wars pretty much guaranteed to be a hit. Flashdance, maybe not so much, but in retrospect, you know, it seems like, oh, those are two big missed opportunities. I asked him about it once and he said... I I said, what would it have been like if you had directed Flashdance? He goes, well, it would have been a huge failure. That's what it would have been like because it wasn't his thing. And you do the same thing. To get Hellboy made, Mm -hmm. you turn down movies that went –
4: I'm famous for the ones I turned down. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about the ones I make. But to be honest, there's only one movie. Every movie I have left behind or not done or I don't repent at all. There's one one that I – I can't help but wonder, which is uh, was a uh, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I, I
4: really so. love the, yeah. the books. I love the books. I don't love all the movies. Mm-hmm. But at that stage, uh, I saw the first two movies, and they were a little too happy for me. Yep. And I thought, do I really want to go on and try to change the entire universe like that? I mean— th- th- I wanted it because the world is fascinating, and she's a very good writer.
0: And well, And uh, I thought Azkaban was, uh, of all of them, that's mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. That is, for me, because— It uh, is my favorite,
4: uh, without a doubt. Yeah,
0: and, uh, Alfonso Cuaron uh, yeah. created something new there. He uh, took the books for what they were, these dark stories. Well, the, and, the, the and, first and t-
4: the first two, I always saw them as Dickensian, mm-hmm. you know, the first two. Yeah. That's the only one that went away that I I, I will always wonder about.
0: Well, will you ever make Frankenstein
4: I hope so one day yeah I mean I, I really don't know when anymore uh, Universal hasn't they were going to do the the allow me to start the screenplay but we haven't finished mm-hmm. the 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 paperwork and all that I want to make sure that I have creative control right. complete creative control uh, and until that is I mean I it's like it's like it's like that girl that you've been dating for 35 years, <laughs> and you can't say, "Would you marry me?" You know, right. it's, it's, it's kind of shameful. And for all for all the fact that I do think uh, the the web makes me s- seem busier than I really am, right. uh, and 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 more, uh, this is the one project that I do pursue and drop because I'm I'm uh, it's daunting for me. Yeah. It's the most important story for me in the history of narrative. Mm -hmm. The most important book in my life was Frankenstein. The most important movie is James Wales' Frankenstein.
0: Well, I see uh, the direct link between what we were discussing now almost an hour ago, your upbringing in Catholicism. And the, the, the story of Frankenstein, the beginning of life, all that stuff, I, I see probably uh, having read that as a as a, a young boy or, a, or yeah. you know, a teen, that you might have uh, drawn those connections. Yeah. And plus, it it is this world of monsters that you were so enamored with, of course. I mean, it makes perfect sense yeah, to no, me. I,
4: and what was beautiful is I, I was like every other kid. I fell in love with the story through James Wales movie. Mm-hmm. Which is full of of beautiful contradictions and beautiful and the clash. I tell you, the clash of Wales' incredible intellect and Boris Karloff's incredible humanity. Mm-hmm. That's what produces an Im- immense movie. But but also I came through it through that those movies and then I read the book and I realized nobody has done the book. Yeah, I mean, and to this day, to this day, nobody has done the book. Is, is amazing to me but nobody has done the, the actual the emotions that are in the book and 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 the, the way I want to treat the one I do is I would love to not not be a slavish not recreate the book but create the same effect that the book has which is, is an incredible journey of of the creature you know?
0: that was my interview with the great Guillermo del Toro check out any of his movies they're all perfect for Halloween. We're celebrating Halloween and my next guest certainly knows a thing or two about how to scare people. Matt Reeves is the director of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes, the Cloverfield movies, and then one that I'm going to tell you about today called Let Me In. Let Me In is a remake of a Swedish film that has a really fascinating uh, premise. It's the story of two 12 year olds, one of whom may or may not be a vampire. This is a perfect movie for Halloween, and here's my conversation with the director, Matt Reeves. When the f- opening credits come up, I saw Hammer Films. Yes. And now Hammer hasn't really been active for a while. Yeah. But I grew it's up over watching
3: 30, over thirty years. Yeah. yeah.
0: And my memory of Hammer Films, and I loved the Christopher Lee Draculas and yeah. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But that they were really lurid, right? The idea was that there was, you know, blood and red colors, and the, it just like they looked really startling.
3: Absolutely.
0: Let me in doesn't have that look uh-huh. though, and which is which is something a little different. So tell me a little bit about working for Hammer, but I guess not making a Hammer film.
3: Right. Well it's interesting because those are the kind of movies, first of all, as a young person, horror movies terrified me. And my memory of Hammer films is staying up, you know, late at night and seeing them, you know, going through the channels and, and catching them on channel nine and them literally giving me nightmares. And because of exactly the things you're saying, they were so lurid. They had you know, the, the sort of blood red and all of that sort of Christopher Lee stuff. I found it absolutely terrifying. And so it's, it's kind of ironic that that's what I do now is make these yeah. genre films. And yet um, there's something about it that is a very uh, exciting thing to do. And there was something about the idea that this was the first vampire film from Hammer Films in like over 30 years Mm -hmm. that I found to be really really exciting but it is a vampire film in in a different tradition and that has um a a lot to do or everything to do with with John Lindquist's story which is really um I think an incredible story in that he he takes the vampire genre and uses it as as a way to describe the pain of adolescence. And, you know, the interesting thing, it's a strange thing to say, but I found that, you know, in reading it and in the Swedish film and what we tried to do, I actually think that it's a very sort of realistic sort of tale, even though it's a vampire story. And that's part of why I think it doesn't have the sort of grand, you know, luridness maybe of the original Hammer films, because this film has a bit of naturalism to it.
0: Well, I think... All the best science fiction and all the best horror and all the best genre films aren't really about the horror and the They're science fiction about the and
3: message and under the surface. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean that's one of the things like I said, as a as a kid, they terrified me. And in fact to this day, if you were to show me a picture of Linda Blair and her Regan McNeil get up and I wasn't prepared. <laughs> You didn't tell me you were going to show it to me. I would the the hair stands up on my neck, and I the blood runs cold, and I I have a visceral reaction. There are things in those movies that just tear me apart. But it's really the reason these things are so effective. I think is because they are about something other than what the metaphor you know other than what the surface part is. The, the metaphor that they are um, using is a way to explore a lot of really sort of real and frightening things and, and to explore our own fears. And that's why, you know, you can make a movie about a giant monster trashing New York and it's really not about that at all, you know, under the surface. And that's that's sort of what makes it challenging and interesting as, as a filmmaker. And I think that the that genre films, my favorite genre films, as you're saying, um, are ne- are never about the myth itself they're about what the myth is using to describe that's actually quite real
0: you're listening to my interview with Matt Reeves director of Let Me In
3: I was put in the mind after
0: having seen uh, Cloverfield and then this film yeah. I was put in the mind of, of John Carpenter not stylistically uh-huh. particularly but in, and not even I mean I, I, he makes genre films for sure but sure. Uh, but every time out he creates a new monster yeah. you know and and he creates monsters and takes monsters I think that we're kind of familiar with uh-huh. and puts a little twist on them Clo- uh-huh. Overfield, you made a big monster movie. Uh something that's been done a lot of times before mm-hmm. but you didn't really ever show us the monster uh-huh. you and you 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 took a different tact on it sure. and and in this one very definitely i mean i think you know one of the things that i thought was cool about the original which we'll talk about in a sec and the in the new film is that there's no coffins there's no castles there's no uh-huh. capes there's stuff uh-huh. and it, they're both set in a landscape that's very stark and yes. white and the complete opposite of the kind of gothic thing yes. that we're so used to with
3: vampires mm-hmm. yeah well it's interesting i don't it's the, it's that. I love the connections that you see. I think the connection that I see most strongly between the two films is that both of them, to me, are very palpably palpably about dread. Um, That that in in Cloverfield, there's this sense of something that is coming, something bad that, that you're in the middle of, and it's that sort of drawing out of that feeling of anxiety. And I think what I responded to in Lindquist's tale was the idea of the metaphor this sort of you know vampire story really being used to describe how it feels to be a bullied kid how it feels to feel so alone that to go to school feels like a horror story to feel right. like it feels like a horror movie and that the development of all of that in the movie was really less about the moments of sort of shock or the moments when things actually happened, but much more about the drawn-out anticipation that something horrendous is coming. And I think that that's something that I, I don't know, I guess I relate to palpably. And and that's the connection I sort of see through the two is that there's, you know, even though stylistically they're quite different, I wanted to do it in a kind of, in a much more classical way, in a kind of Hitchcockian-inspired way or like a Polanski film or something where you really get into the way the character would see things, but in a very classical sort of restrained sense. And I love that kind of filmmaking. And I think the fun thing about it is is the idea of taking you through an experience and making you identify with that character, even as they participate in or are part of really disturbing things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a scene where Richard Jenkins begins the sort of it's the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. He goes out to get blood for for Abby the second time and it goes wrong and that was really all inspired for me by Dial M for Murder because I started thinking, you know, what did Hitchcock do? He did this thing where he had a scene that was all about how they were going to kill Grace Kelly and you're thinking, "Oh my god, these guys are going to kill Grace Kelly. This is terrible." He tells you everything they're going to do and then none of those things happens. And Bit by bit, you find yourself, despite yourself, starting to actually identify with the killer. And you start thinking, oh my God, oh, oh, how is he going to get out of this? And then when she actually stabs him, it's tremendously tragic and it's somehow he's turned the tables and he's implicated you because you've actually felt yourself as a killer and actually got involved in his killing of Grace Kelly which is insane and yes, I sure. thought well you know if we could do something like that where you see Richard go out and do something once and you just see it and you're, you're, you're horrified by it then when that starts to happen again if you start to then go bit by bit through that event as it unravels that by the end you might find yourself almost rooting for him to kill that kid just anything to get out of that situation and that's what what I love about movies is that they can put you in people's shoes, and you can start to sort of see the world the way they do for just a moment, and that's really exciting. That, those are the things that, to me, in trying to do those t- two movies, it had a lot to do with point of view and dread and drawing all of that out. And, and but I love the things that you were saying too. I
0: think. Well, you you mentioned Polanski as well, and, and by and the
3: way, I, I'm a huge. I love John Carpenter. Like yeah, the, yeah. the the thing I think is incredible. I mean, Halloween is amazing. The, the he thing is maybe amazing.
0: the greatest movie monster of the last. You know, twenty five. I years totally
3: now. agree, and and you know, also he's doing political things, mm-hmm. and I mean, he is. I think he's an amazing filmmaker, and I think the thing is absolutely incredible. A
0: monster that can be whatever it's going to be is such a crazy idea. It is right? a crazy
3: you idea. Know. I was talking about that to somebody today because that movie came up, and I was saying that it's almost as if you know, it's one thing when you have nightmares and things start occurring that can't occur in reality, right. and that's part of what's so horrifying. And the idea in the thing is almost as if your nightmares could come to life. The idea that there are no rules and that no Nothing yeah. is really off the table. That's a horrifying idea. That behind every surface could be a threat is yeah. kind of terrifying. It's not
0: his best known movie, I don't think. Maybe amongst you know film geeks, maybe, sure. but but uh, it is. I think his best movie. The thing. I agree. Just, you know, I think it's, it's a... a
3: masterful movie. I, I, I think it's incredible. In fact, I watched it not that long ago, and it still holds up. Just it's just as good. It's an amazing movie. That
0: was Matt Reeves. Check out his terrific movie, Let Me In new twist on a vampire film. Perfect for Halloween. You can find it wherever you legally rent or buy movies. Big thanks to Matt Reeves for stopping by. Big thanks to Guillermo del Toro and also Nell Campbell and Patricia Quinn. But as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and have a great Halloween. (laughs)